Welcome to Gatekeeper, a podcast about booking from the bookers and gatekeepers who decide who's in, who's out. Also, there's other stuff. And now your host of Gatekeeper, artistic director of the Hollywood Improv, Jamie Flam. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Gatekeeper. My name is Jamie Flam. We got a really, really phenomenal episode. You're going to love it so much. Who do I have on as my guest? His name is Sean Aronson. I went to high school with this kid. He's not a kid anymore. Neither am I. But we're adults and we're doing our own thing. And he's got his own podcast. It's called The Voice Behind the Voice. And it's called that because Sean is a baseball announcer. In fact, he was just named the Minor League Baseball Announcer of the Year. Um, which is a very prestigious uh, honor for him. And I wanted to have him on the show to talk about his path. Um, He's wanted to be a baseball announcer since I've known him in high school. And he's now been with the same minor league independent team for the last 10 years, a thousand plus games he's announced. And while getting through the gatekeepers in the baseball announcing world is very unique, there are, of course, so many things that apply to comedy and any other aspiration that you have. So you're going to get a lot out of this. And also, uh, this is what's called a swap cast. That's right. This interview will be also available on Sean's podcast, The Voice Behind the Voice, a podcast that he just started. So it's a two-way conversation. And he asks a lot of great questions about me and my job here at The Improv. So you're going to enjoy it very much. Hey, Jamie, how you doing? Oh, my. It's AdBot. Adbot, do we have an ad to read today? Yeah, but first, the Shama Toba. Oh, thank you. Are you Jewish, Adbot? Not really practicing. I'm kind of a bad Jew. I just, you know, go for the high holidays, and of course, I celebrate Hanukkah because I love presents so much. Well, what do we got as far as an ad to read? Is it something related to the Jewish holidays? Not really, but I, I guess it has something, I mean, basically, it has something to do with you and your personal life. Well, what do you know about my personal life, Adbot? I know that you've been grappling with, you know, so much stress and that causes insomnia. That's a good point. Today's sponsor is Casper. Oh, the sleep brand? The one that created the perfect mattress that's sold directly to consumers? Yeah, the one that's eliminating commission-driven inflated prices. And it's award-winning, right? Sleep Surface, it was developed in-house, has a sleek design, it's delivered in a small, how do they do that, size box? Exactly, that's today's sponsor. Geez, I really honestly could use a new mattress because my sleep or lack thereof, is it's getting pretty bad. And why wouldn't I want to have the mattress that Time Magazine named one of the best inventions of 2015 that combines springy latex and supportive memory foams to create an award-winning sleep surface? Don't forget that it has just the right sink and just the right bounce. So I guess I'm going to have to drive 25 to 45 miles to the nearest mattress place and test out the mattress for five minutes. I mean, how am I even going to tell if it's the right mattress for me? You know what I'm saying? Don't even worry. With Casper, you can try the mattress for 100 nights risk-free in your own home. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. If I don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund me everything? Now you're going to tell me that's made in America. Actually, it is made in America. Plus, there's a special deal for people that listen to your podcast. You're right. It says it right here. You can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com backslash gatekeeper and use the code gatekeeper. Well, that's pretty cool, Adbot. Thanks for thanks for spreading the gospel. Have fun in Temple. Thanks, Jamie, and I hope you have a really good Sukkot as well. 
Thanks, Adbot. Well, I guess that's pretty cool, guys. Uh, just go to casper.com backslash gatekeeper and use the code gatekeeper for a great deal on a mattress that you can try out for 100 days. That's amazing. Also amazing, this Swapcast episode of Gatekeeper. Please do me a big favor and enjoy. Gatekeeper. We can, we can stare at each other and figure out who's going to start. It's like, it's like two guys trying to lead in dancing, right? Isn't that what it is? Mm-hmm. So, you know, we could just have a staring contest. Do you go to a lot of dances and have staring <laughs> contests with men? Uh, not that there's anything wrong with No, that. not that there's anything wrong. I just, uh, I know what it's like to try to, to lead in dancing mm-hmm. and then have the person you're with try to lead as well because I have two left feet and mm-hmm. it's pretty bad. So, you know, it, this is what it is. You got two hosts trying to host one podcast. I know. Is this the first time ever happening? Probably not. In the history of podcasts, there are seven million podcasts. There, there I are. I think this has probably happened before. I guarantee you this. Think about think about some of the big time guys that have other comics that have podcasts on, and that's exactly what happens. Yeah. And you and I are in that uncomfortable moment right now of how do we start? Should we just talk? Should we ask a question? What should happen? Hi, I'm Jamie Flan, and welcome <laughs> to the Gatekeeper, the Voice Behind the Voice mashup crossover episode. I'm Jamie Flam. I'm Sean Aronson. Why do this? This, I mean, this is this is interesting, right? I mean, you and I, separate podcasts, separate worlds in terms of podcasts. You comedy, me sports. Why do this? Because you, you reached out and you said, "Hey, I'm very proud of you," which I appreciate. We're going to get into how much thanks I owe you, but you were like, "Hey, let let's do a podcast." What, what was your thought process in wanting to do one? Well, this this show is Gatekeeper, as yeah. you know, is about the uh, decision makers and how do you uh, appease them on your road to whatever world you might be in. Of course, comedy is, is what I know. And so to this point, I think 100% of the guests have been comedy related in some way. But since day one, I've wanted to venture into other realms because there's gatekeepers in every single industry in the world. And you in particular, who has your life mission has been to be a, a broadcaster, yep. a baseball specific broadcaster. And watching your rise through the ranks over the years since high school. Now, was that 20 years ago? Boy, it's, did we just have our 20th anniversary? None of, none of us went to, I think no. there were like 20 people that went to the 20 year uh, anniversary. So yeah, it's probably been a little over 20 years now. It was 95? That it was the year we graduated. Yeah, man. Granada Hills High School. World. But I wanted, but like, what a crazy world. I mean, in comedy, there's so many different avenues and it doesn't make it any easier. But as sports broadcasting, like there's just so many spots. How do you make it? So I thought you'd be the perfect person. Well, there are, but I mean, it's, it's gotta be the same as, as it is for comedy. I mean, you can, in comedy, you can play, uh, stand-up shows wherever you can go to an open mic. Now there's no such thing as an open mic in the broadcasting world, unless I want to grab a, you know, a recorder, go sit in the stands and no one listens to me. So it doesn't really matter. Uh, but Look, when I started in this business 16 years ago, and I started right out of college, I didn't know what I was doing. I had no clue what I was doing. I don't know if I still have any idea what I'm doing, but you, you, you do an internship. I don't know. Did you do an internship for, for the comedy world? Not really. No. So you just, you, you jumped in. I mean, you got your start. I, I did an internship. Basically, they pay you pennies on the dollar. Uh, which now is illegal, by the way. Right. So, uh, man, I'd be rich right now. So, oh, that's sweet. Uh, I could probably money. retire yeah. as an intern with the amount of money they've got to pay people these days. But I, I did an internship in Colorado Springs. I went to the University of Colorado Boulder. 
And, and I remember the very first time I picked up a phone to call a bunch of teams out there because I wanted to get a job. I thought, graduated, here's my degree. Someone's going to give me a job, right? That's the way it works. And I was calling around the teams and I called a team in New York and I'm in Boulder, Colorado. And general manager picked up the phone and I said, look, I'm interested. Love to- Joe Torre? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> I wish it worked that way. I put a minor league team out in New York and I said, look, I'm interested, you know, internship out there, uh, like to get my start. And the guy asked me, and I, th I thought it was a weird question. He said, why do you want to move all the way out here just for an internship? And I thought to myself, what an idiotic question. This is something I've wanted to do my entire life. I've never wanted to do anything else. I'll move, I'll move anywhere. I'll go to India if I have to, to, to get a job. And I thought, well, that's really strange. So my next call was to find a team that was close to where I was in Boulder, Colorado. And there was a, a AAA team for people out there that don't know. Your major league is at the top. Uh, AAA is, is the next step below that, AA, single A, and rookie ball. And there was a AAA team in Colorado Springs, about 90 miles down the road. Picked up the phone. I called them. I said, look, I'm looking to get my start. I want to be a broadcaster. They had a, an opening for an intern in the media relations department, basically PR stuff, things like that. And I did a phone interview and they hired me again, pennies on the dollar. And, and that's how I got my start. And that was uh, the year that was in 2000. And here I am 16 years later, uh, living my dream. I've always been a director of broadcasting media relations, always doing play by play and, and media relations. So that's, that's my background. But now, now we got to flip the script for you because this is the way it's going to work, this little song and dance here. Because I remember, like, when we were growing up, I didn't know if, and I was trying to think back, did you always want to get into comedy? Is this something that just sort of happened organically? And, you know, one day you woke up, you're, you're around at UCSB and parting it up and saying to yourself, you know what, I wonder what I want to do and, and just woke up one day? No. I mean, I don't, we, we were obsessed with comedy. I was in junior high and elementary school and high school. We used to go to your house. Yeah. And just watch Seinfeld. Yep. And then friends. <laughs> That's right. It, it turned into, it was a Thursday night party where it started off with Seinfeld and then morphed into Seinfeld and friends. Yeah. We were obsessed with comedy and, um, but I it never occurred to me that, that there was a career in that. And so then I went to, to college. I was a religious studies major just cause I had to choose something and I, I ultimately love it. Love that major. But, um, it wasn't until after college. And I, I saw a show called Mr. Show on HBO um, a few years after it had been off the air. But I was like, oh, that speaks to me. I want to do that. Whatever that is, I want to do that. And then in San Francisco, started just putting on shows, trying to do that. But but you didn't only just try to put on shows. I mean, you and you continue to to perform. I mean, it's not so much stand up. It's more variety show that, that you've done. You've done it for a while. There's something so raw about that getting up in front of the public that they can see you. The difference between your job and my job, no one can see me. Okay. I'm a radio broadcaster, TV broadcaster, but if you're watching on TV, you don't, you see my face for 15 seconds at the beginning, but there aren't eyes staring back at you. There are eyes staring back sure. at you. How awful was that the first time? I, I mean, I might, I might want to get sick if that were the case that you have one job and that's to be funny. And if you're not funny, you get that immediate response. So how tough was that the first time? first time I would do open mics and, um, but it was almost tongue in cheek doing, doing these characters and they were so out there that people appreciated them, or at least it was just like a break in the monotony of just open micer after open micer. So I don't think it was a good litmus test for that. The first time I ever truly did stand up was a disaster. 
it was in Santa Barbara. I'd been doing comedy for maybe six months. My, and Yasser, our friend yep. from high school, was doing this big benefit at a huge uh, venue in downtown Santa Barbara and with like 500 people. He was like, Jamie, you're doing comedy now. I'm doing this big show with like, you know, DJs and, and rappers and you should go do, you should do your comedy stuff. And so I, t- I my friend Chris, I was like, let's go down. We'll, we'll perform stand-up. Now having booked a comedy club for almost six years, like th- th- how ridiculous the notion <laughs> of your first time doing a true stand-up set in front of 500 people. It's just it's something, it's dumb. And I remember driving down from San Francisco to Santa Barbara and just trying to memorize all these like lines. And long story short, got there, saw this crowd. Chris and I drank shot after shot of Jack Daniels and got on stage, ditched the whole act and just talked about hip hop. And people didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what was going on. Apparently this is on tape somewhere. Anyway, that's my first time going up on stage. It's, it's ridiculous. No laughs at all? Or was there any sort of response from the crowd? Maybe some nervous laughs or some laughing at me, the drunk guy on stage. Uh, but uh, yeah. Did, did that scare you though from ever wanting to go back? I mean, did, did it take you a while from that show to the next show to, to do anything? Because that can be devastating. I'm sure you, you talk to comics all the time and they tell you about the horrific times that happened. But the biggest thing for comics is you got to be able to get back on, on the proverbial bike. But was there a long layoff between first performance to second performance? Probably. I did. I, I would just, like you said, just do variety shows. And then when I got to, to LA, I started doing stand up in more in earnest. But even then, now I look back at how what I was doing was more like just, you know, throwing out half-baked jokes. And I always had the luxury of a home audience because for the most part, since I've been in LA for over 10 years, I've been at the helm of a venue. And, you know, I know people. and So I always have like a home audience and I can do that. It's like, oh, it's Jamie trying out some stuff. Ah, it's funny. But it's a whole different ballpark when you start doing shows for a crowd of people you don't know, who don't know you, who don't care about you who were just like, make me laugh. And you can't get away with that. So I've certainly bombed in front of other crowds. <laughs> and in 2009, maybe 2010, I went to New York for about a month. And it was like, with the intent, I'm going to go do stand-up every night and see how it goes. And by the end of that trip, I was like, I'm not a stand-up. I believe if I put the time and work in, I could be. But seeing the the dedication and hard work sure. and what it takes and and... Also not being precious about it. Like you can't become a stand-up and do it once or twice a week or even it's going up and being relentless and getting up as much as you can every single night and dedicating your life to the craft so that you can become comfortable on that stage. But that says a lot about you that you recognize that in yourself that, hey, I'm not, I don't have the fortitude to be a stand-up comic or, you know, I don't want to spend the time to do that. And for you writing a variety show or doing a variety show is, is something that, that interested you. And uh, I imagine in the comedy world, there are a bunch of different avenues like that. You don't, not everybody has to be a standup. You, again, you can get into movies or TV shows or variety shows or things like that. Is there anything out there that you've wanted to try that you haven't yet in the comedy world? Oh, I mean, I want to make TV shows and, and movies. I mean, there's just a million things. Um, but I've had the luxury of I said just having these home venues, especially the improv that just has so much, like we're in a podcast studio that's given me the, outlet to do that but back to you my friend <laughs> there, you said like there's no open mics yep. in the world of broadcasting for sports but you did say that you could speak into a microphone yeah. which you did 
growing up, didn't yeah. you? Yeah. Well, so, you know, I, I joke with all the uh, broadcasters that I interview on my podcast, the, the Voice Behind the Voice, that, you know, we all got started somehow, you know, whether, you know, if you talk to older guys, they didn't have video games back when they were younger. But, you know, our generation, it was, uh, you know, whether it was Nintendo or, you know, RBI baseball, things like that. And, you know, your friends would play, you guys would play, and it would be, hey, Sean, broadcast this game. So you're broadcasting a, you know, a, a shortened version of what a, a regular baseball game would be. And that was sort of, you know, my role in, in terms of that. But I always knew, look, you grew up in Los Angeles and you play baseball. And I played high school at, at Granada, you know, same high school Ryan Braun graduated from and John Elway graduated from. Uh, Elway was a heck of a baseball player, obviously went on to big things in football, but and I realized I was never good enough to go anywhere. I was 5'5", five, five, still 5'5". Five, five. Um, you know, I, I had athletic ability, but not anything that was going to get me to college. Um, and so I realized early on, probably 10 or 11 years old, I wanted to do play-by-play. You grew up in LA listening to the great Vin Scully, who, who just retired. And you think, well, if you can't play it, and I had no passion to teach it, you can talk about it. Someone will pay you to talk about it. And so I was always on that path. And so I guess that was sort of the, the first, um, you know, inkling that, hey, this is what I want to do. You're sitting around with friends, or you're playing basketball and whatever it may be, and you're, you're broadcasting these games. But my first time actually talking into a microphone where nobody was listening was, I think it was my senior year of college. And I was dating a girl whose brother played on the high school baseball team. And so I went and broadcast her brother's baseball games, brought a a tape recorder. I mean, that's how long ago we're talking here and sat in like a little shed. And the shed was where the scorekeeper ran the scoreboard. It was him and I, and that was it. And I just broadcast the games because I needed a demo. You, you need a demo to be able to send to people. And that's, that's exactly what I did. So it's me, this guy running the scoreboard and nobody else. And, and that was my first taste of what it was like when I got that internship in Colorado Springs. Um, and, and this shows dedication. I drove from Boulder to Colorado Springs, which is 90 miles one way every day in the off season. So you, you did a lot of corporate sales and things like that in the off season. So I drove 90 miles there and 90 miles back. Oh my God. And, and I remember the second day I was there, the general manager looked at me and he said, you won't last a week here. And I thought to myself, screw you. I'm about to prove you wrong. And whether that was his, you know, his motivation, or if he honestly believed I wasn't going to last, um, I don't know, but I lasted the entire season and they, I think they respected me for what I did. Now, when the season started, you got to remember you get there at nine o'clock in the morning for people that don't know the baseball world. You're there at 9am for a seven o'clock game and you're not out of there till 10 30, 11 o'clock at night. Now I'm dumb, but I'm not dumb enough to drive another 90 miles back, get home at one o'clock in the morning and then turn around it, you know, drive it seven o'clock in the morning to get there at nine. So I would stay with, uh, one of the interns at, at, at his apartment and, it got to August and, you know, baseball season started in, in April and the general manager came to me and he said, we love what you've done. We want to keep you on, but we know what you want to do. So we're going to give you three innings of a game, you know, coming up. And I thought, oh my God, this is, this is my big moment. Yeah. And I went to the play-by-play the -play broadcaster, the main guy, and, and I said to him, GM just came to me and said, I can do a game. So he said, all right, let's set up a date. We set up a date and he stayed home. Okay. So like the number one guy stayed home. It was me and the number two guy and Colorado Springs, uh, the Sky Sox who were the Rockies AAA affiliate. And it was the Iowa Cubs, the Cubs AAA affiliate. 
and it rained and it rained and the game got rained out. And I, I talked for maybe two minutes in a pregame show, you know, and, and that was that. And so here was my debut and it got rained out. That's hilarious. Mother nature just decided not going to happen. So the number one guy comes back the next day and he says, no, you got rained out. We promised you three innings. We're going to give you three innings. And so in minor league baseball, you play two seven-inning games for a doubleheader. It's not like the major leagues where you play two nine-innings. So I got one inning in game one and two innings in game two. And I remember doing the inning in game one. And even back then, this was 2000, you could still listen on the internet. My parents did. And I called my parents afterwards. And my parents said, you sound nervous. And I'm thinking to myself, this was the first time I've ever done this. Now, Mind you, I knew this is what I always wanted to do, but I never did it in college. I didn't join the radio station. I didn't do any play-by-play in college. This was my actual first time on air. Nobody knew that in Colorado Mm -hmm. Springs, by the way. And I said, I am. And they said, look, this is something you've always wanted to do. Just try to settle yourself down. So I got two innings in game two. I thought I did better. You know, uh, the tape would probably tell you differently, but I got that taste and I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And I knew that I had made the right decision uh, and it, it, look, my job is to paint a picture. That's what it is. I mean, your job is to entertain and to make people laugh. My job is also to entertain, my, but my job is also to paint a picture for people that are listening at home that aren't at the game. Um, and you're painting that picture for them. What are the sights? What are the sounds? What are the smells? And you're bringing that to them and you're trying to bring a game to life. Uh, you know, a lot of what I learned, I learned just by ear, by listening to the great broadcasters. And I try to carry that into my own broadcast. Where else do you learn? I mean, (laughs) well, look, you, there are plenty of schools you can go to. I'm sure on the comedy side, there are places you can go. I don't know if there are specific colleges you can, but I know, you know, obviously everyone talks about second city. You can learn there. You just learn by uh, trial and error. But, and I've said this on my podcast a million times, there might be a drinking game out there. Every time I say this, people have to drink. But uh, if I knew then what I knew now, I'd be much better off when we were in high school. Okay. There was no Google where you could Google where you should go to school. And you remember they had college counselors Mm -hmm. and you would talk to the college counselor. They didn't know anything. You know, you remember the stack of books they had, you know, with, with every school and all the majors they had and things like that. Well, that's basically what I did. And then I asked around to some people, but I would have gone to Syracuse, which is a huge broadcasting school, the university of Missouri, um, Arizona state, um, Northwestern. I mean, there are a bunch of schools out there, but I didn't know that back then. I had no idea. So I could have learned that way. And again, if I had any sort of confidence in myself when I was in college, I would have joined the radio station, mm-hmm. you know, which you did in, in school. I did. And because I, I remember visiting you at, at Santa Barbara and sitting in the, uh, uh, you know, in the studio, you know, one night when you were, uh, when, when you were doing your show. And, and I, I thought to myself, man, I should do that. But I never had the courage. I didn't have that confidence in me to do that. And so I just, I never took advantage of it. And like I said, Maybe I needed it, maybe I didn't, but here I am 16 years later, still fulfilling my dream and, and you know, doing what I wanted to. So, um, you know, I, it's, it's one of those things that I've learned by just doing and making my own mistakes, uh, but I definitely could have learned many other ways. And I don't know how my career would have been any different. I'm, it could have been. Connections are everything. I mean, you know that, yeah. but, you know, that, here's where I'm at. So exactly where are you at? You are with? Yeah. I'm with the St. Paul Saints. You've so been with them for how long? Yeah, 10 years. Um, I just broadcast my 1,000th game in in my career with them. Um, and so the St. Paul Saints are basically an independent uh, minor league baseball team. All that means is 
they're not affiliated with a major league organization. It's not a town ball team. It's not a beer league softball. It's it's none of that stuff. The guys that play for us were in affiliated organizations. They were in double A, triple A. We've had a few major league guys, but they've been released. You know, numbers games. They weren't good enough. Whatever it is, and they, this is like a second chance league for them. And then oftentimes, if they perform, they will then get their contract purchased by these major league organizations and get put somewhere um, in in the affiliate system. So uh, I've been there for ten years now. Uh, like I said, I just, I just broadcast my 1000th game. They, they did a little to do about that. Uh, but that was more for me. And I'm curious to get your, cause I, again, I talked to a lot of broadcasters about this egocentric business. Okay. Broadcasters. We, we have egos. There is not a person in my front office and this is not their fault that knew that the last game of the regular season this year would have been my 1000th game. And I told them why, because I have an ego. Why? Because I wanted them to make a big to-do about it on the field before the game, because I have an ego. Now you, I have <laughs> got to imagine in your business, it is the same way that you get comics, that you get people that are trying to get into this business that think they are much better than they are, or even when they've hit the top, they have large egos. So I'm curious about you and dealing with egos in your business. Yeah. Comedians. Oh yeah. Entertainers. Yeah. LA. It's, it's kind of, it's, that's the big thing to deal with. Um, everyone has one. Sure. Um, you have to have a, a certain measure of ego to, you know, and confidence to get on a stage and, and entertain people and to make it. And it's, it's, you know, it's what makes this place so great and, and equally frustrating at times is, is that you have to juggle all these people and their perception of where they're at or, you know, how they're seen by the public or just on any given night, you know, like I'm get, I get a veils from 500 to a thousand comics every week and I have 10 spots and every single one of those comics thinks they're the ones that deserve that spot, whether they have zero TV credits or 10. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's just, the, it, it's, it's the nature of what this place is and especially the Hollywood improv, which is like, you know, it's the industry club. It's, it's the Hollywood club. Um, it's the place where people still have this perception of where you get discovered. You know, every time I'm not putting someone up, it's like I'm hurting in their mind. Anyway, I'm sure. hurting their career. They can't get up here. Then they're not gonna be able to be seen by the agent or that manager or that producer. And they're not gonna be able to get their big break. So I don't know if that answers your question, but, um, but also going back to you, like there's no, I don't think that's the same type of ego, like to be somewhere for 10 years and your thousandth game and wanting to have some recognition know, recognition yeah no but but there look the the other side of that is you don't say anything you just go about your business you broadcast a game the broadcaster is not the story he's never the story he he should never be or she should never be the story the story is what you're talking about or what you're broadcasting on the field of play on the court whatever it is that's the story and the players are the story the game is the story the broadcaster is not the story um, you know, very few are. Again, Vin Scully, he becomes the story, not because of anything that he did. Uh, Dick Enberg, who just retired as well, uh, was broadcasting for the Padres, but he's done a million other things. Um, those guys become the story because they've been around for so long and they've seen so many things and they connect generations of people. Uh, the the schmuck who's been around for 10 years in, you know, with one team, um, he, he's not the story, but again, everybody wants to be recognized in some form or fashion. And there, again, ego is a sliding scale, small, medium, large, whatever it is. 
and and that's that's just the way it is. So uh, look, I'm I'm never I never think I'm bigger than I am. I don't walk around the the, the Twin Cities area, St. Paul, Minneapolis area, thinking I can't walk down the street because people are going to stop me. That that's not <laughs> the way my life works. Okay, people barely know you know who I am, even when I tell them, hey, I'm the broadcaster for the St. Paul Saints, and their immediate response is, I've heard you at the games. No, no, you have not, because what you think I do is now batting number 22, right. but that's not what I do. So people are very unsure about what I do. They don't know what I do, even when I tell them I'm the TV and radio broadcaster. And, and that's, that's my biggest pet peeve of my industry. Like when I tell people this is what I do and they still don't understand what I do, I'm thinking I've worked very hard to get to where I am and I can't even explain it to you because you don't get it. So, um, so look, ego plays a role in that because you, you know, you, you have one and you, no one likes their ego to get crushed. I mean, that's, no. that's the way it is. And what's well, part of creating your own narrative. And I think, I don't know what you're, and I want to hear what your next move is, if there is one, or if you're going to retire from <laughs> this team, but, um, it, it, doing a thousand games with one team. That is, that is tremendous. Is that a record? No, uh, for, for the team I'm with. Yeah. I'm, I'm the longest tenured broadcaster in our league. Um, I'm also the longest tenured, uh, in terms of games for our organization. No one's ever done a thousand games. There are guys that have come before me that have gone on to bigger things. Okay. They have gone on to, uh, my predecessor, uh, is doing the pre and post game show for the twins. Uh, one of the, the guy, one of the guys at the very beginning is now the play-by-play voice on TV for the Minnesota wild, the, the NHL team. Um, there's another guy that, that held my role that is doing play-by-play for the Kansas City Royals. All these, uh, all these guys have been uh, guests on my podcast. Um, and by the way, maybe I should, now would be as good a time as any for your listeners who don't know what my podcast is about. So it, the voice behind the voice is basically me pulling back the curtain on play-by-play broadcasters um, and telling their story. When you tune into a game, all you're hearing is what they're describing. But oftentimes you don't know what their story is. And so this podcast aims to kind of pull that back um, you know, I've interviewed, you know, I know you're Los Angeles centric, but I also know that a podcast is national, but you might get a, a few more on the LA side. And I've interviewed, uh, Nick Nixon of the LA King, LA Kings, uh, JB Long, who just started with the LA Rams. Um, I've got him, uh, Bob Miller, who also does the LA Kings will be a guest when I return to Minnesota of all places he's here, but they're playing in, in Minnesota when I get back. So, you know, it, it aims to kind of pull back that, that curtain, um, on that front. But, there, there are a number of guys that came before me that have gone on to bigger things. They've, they've reached the pinnacle of their career. Um, you know, I guess it's like a, a comedian now getting their own show and right? mm-hmm. that would be the next step. So for me, it's, uh, there's, there's two avenues, continue what I'm doing, uh, as a play by play broadcaster and see if I can reach that pinnacle or say, what is I, that pinnacle? The, yeah, so yeah, the pinnacle would be major league baseball. Uh, that would be exact uh, broadcasting for a team. Um, you know, maybe broadcasting for a network, but I don't have aspirations. I don't want to go work for ESPN. Like that doesn't excite me doing that. Doesn't, uh, I feel like that would be way too corporate for me. I'd love to be a broadcaster for one of the, you know, major league teams out there. Um, so that, that would be the step wait around or try to get on with an affiliated ball club. Not that that necessarily will give me the Avenue that I want to go, but, but that would be the next step or get out of the business completely become, you know, work in a PR firm or, or become a director of communications with a major league organization where you help run that department. Now you're not doing any play by play, but you're running that department. Um, 
or become an, a sports information director at a college. I think those are my three best avenues because of the, the skill sets that I have. I think the second two are really boring. <laughs> and, and it could be, you know, but that's the thing. And, and you know, and maybe, I don't know, you can attest to this or, or tell me it's not the same. For me, once I get out of the business of broadcasting, once I step away from being a play-by-play broadcaster, I'm not going back. It's so hard to get in that everybody wants the job. Everyone thinks they can do the job. That once you get out, it's going to be hard to get back in. Because I'll be 40. You're going to be 40 sooner than I will. But but I'll be 40 in May. And it's it's hard because it's a, it's a younger person's game. Is it? Yeah. Because when you start in minor league baseball, they don't pay you anything. My first job, my very first job outside of Colorado Springs, so after my internship, was in Allentown, Pennsylvania. The worst two years of my life. Okay, awful. Couldn't stand it. But you need to get your start somewhere. You know what I made? What did you make? I made $9,000 a year, full time. So 15, 16 hour days during the season and your normal eight, nine hours in the off season. $9,000. What did you like eat? <laughs> well, here's the thing. You and I both, you probably a better Jew than I am, <laughs> but I lived off of bar mitzvah money for quite a while. Uh, I mean, I really did. And, and that's, I, I had to, I tapped into that fund as quick as I could. You know, you, you look back when, when you were bar mitzvah and, you know, grandma and grandpa gave you uh, savings bonds and you were angry because you couldn't spend it. I'll tell you what, they became great things later on in life. I, and so that's, that's what I lived off of, but it was rough. I mean, it was very, very difficult, but $9,000 is criminal nowadays. I mean, yeah. you can't, you, you can't do that. So, uh, but you, you make ends meet. And I lived in a 13 by 15 foot box basically is what it was. You know, it was like an efficiency, uh, you know, with the, the dresser and then a foot away from that, was the couch and a foot away from that was the bed. I mean, that's, but that's what you do. And, and this was in, this was in Pennsylvania, which anyone listening in LA says, well, that's the norm out here. Anyone listening in New York is saying that's the norm, right? You know, that, that's what it is. But you know, when you first start, that's you, you have to struggle to get to where you're at. And I thought, I wasn't even affected by the $9,000. It didn't bother me. I, I almost wear that as a badge of honor now. Nowadays. Absolutely. And, and so I look at it and say, yeah, $9,000. I didn't care. I, I knew I was in the business I wanted to get in. And, and, and that was it. So to flip it for you now, your first official job in the world of comedy, because going up and, and doing you know, the stand-up and things like that and going around can be considered a first job for that if that's the route that you want to go. But what was the avenue that you took to now become where you are now at the, at the Hollywood Improv and, and become, you know, uh, you know, the booker and, and the man that, you know, runs, uh, you know, half this club? Uh, what was it? What was that first job for you that, that sort of was the gateway to this? It was definitely the West Side Eclectic Comedy Theater in Santa Monica, which at, in 2005, at the end of 2005, I applied for that. And um, it opened in 2006, but it was a brand new theater on, in, the, in the back alley of Third Street Promenade. It was this empty space. This guy, Mark Campbell, found it. He'd come from UCB on New York, um, the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater, and was one of the first house teams out there. So he kind of saw the building of what's now become one of the biggest comedy institutions in, in the country. Um, and so he, he had been going to get his MBA at UCLA and was teaching improv to his classmates and to business students at UCLA and then found the space and it was dirt cheap because it was in this alley 
was probably going to be closed in a couple of years um, because there's a restaurant in front. So they just gave him this cheap rate and he needed someone to help run it. Posted an ad on Craigslist. I applied to it. Told him I just moved here from San Francisco. I had this, you know, had been producing shows, set up an interview and um, we hit it off. But he called me after a week after he'd been interviewing people. I was like, he's like, I like you a lot. I think you're one of my top choices, but you've never run a theater. And I, I said, I understand that concern. Um, I promise you I'll, I'll make this amazing and I'll put my, my whole life and soul into it. Um, and I sent him an email that next day just basically, basically saying, look, reiterating that fact and told him, like you, I will work for free. I work for $9,000 a year. <laughs> Um, but I did, I said, I said, you know, if you want to work with me on a trial basis for the first few months, I will, I will work for free. And he told me that ultimately that was, and he didn't pay me. He told me pay kind of the, the equivalent of 9,000 sure. in LA in 2006 <laughs> is what I got paid. Um, I made almost no money, but. Which is like $150,000 in LA, right? That that's the equivalent of what $9,000 is. Now right? is yeah. <laughs> so I made no money, but got thrown into the fire of how do you build a community and a slate of shows and classes, improv classes. And it was, that was my internship pretty much was, you know, just getting to see it all from the ground up. And now it's like, I would argue it's one of the best comedy venues in LA. Uh, when I left in 2009, at the end of 2009, they brought in a new team of people to help run it. Uh, my replacement, this guy Lloyd Alquist and, He's now one of the biggest celebrities in the world. He created a show called the Epic Rap Battles of History. Um, and now, but he, his group came in. I had hired him to replace me and now they run it and they have a bar and it's amazing. Well, I, I want to ask you because I think we're both on, on in similar situations. I look at my predecessors with the team that I'm with and they've gone on to, you know, bigger things and, and what have you. And you've obviously, uh, you know, seen some people in your industry go on to, to bigger things. And again, we all have different aspirations. Does it ever bother you when you look at those people and say, am I doing something wrong? Is there something I'm not, is there something I don't have that, that they have, or you know what, maybe I should just run and get out of this because obviously I don't have it. Do, does that ever cross your mind? Does, do things like that ever bother you? Of course. I'm a human being. And, um, I, you know, I think with age, you get a little bit better with it, but especially now with Facebook and all the, and Twitter and you're online and you see all these people and they're talking about all these things that are happening. And, you know, I can fall prey to that. Like com comics, especially can be so catty, but you know, you see your friends get booked on this hot show and like what, and there's just so many comics and, and they're for so few opportunities. Um, but whether it's getting booked on that TV show and, or, you know, getting your big break and, and now more than ever, I'm seeing people I've known and worked with and booked and collaborated with or, you know, getting on SNL and, all these things. And I look back and I'm like, what did I do? I should be on SNL. <laughs> but the, the difference is, and I recognize more than ever is I didn't ever have the focus. Sure. I've always been a producer. Um, and I've always had my hand in, in a lot of things. And the most success I've had is when I go full bore on something. But even when I'm, I've been here at the book in the club, I've been working on scripts and doing stuff and also producing shows. And it's kind of got me into this broad place of where I, I can do a lot of things. I'm versatile and, and I'm excited about what could come next. But the people that have gotten those, the big specials and they're blowing up in stand-up and they're on SNL, their laser focus was, I want to do characters mm -hmm. and I want to be a performer 
and they put every ounce of energy into that. Are you okay being behind the scenes? Because look, only so many people can be in front of the camera. I mean, you if you turn on a newscast, you recognize who the anchors are, or the sports anchor, or the the weatherman, or you know, if you turn on a sporting event, you recognize the the play by play person. But there are a million people behind the scenes in the truck, running the camera, producing, directing. Did did you come to a point in your life where you're like, you know what, I'm okay doing this, and I'll get my fill by, uh, you know, performing on stage. I know you and Vanessa have a show, and and uh, you know, you, you'll perform and do things like that, and that can kind of give you, you know, what you need. But are you satisfied with, hey, I'm good being the person behind the scenes. I'm I'm good being, you know, the the person pulling the strings, and I'm gonna. I'm going to spot a power. I get to say who comes on stage and who doesn't. And, um, you know, with, with great power comes great responsibility. Yeah. But I mean, was there a point in your life, in your career where you said, I'm good with that? Yeah. I think in the last couple of years, and it's a little bit ironic because I've had more fun on stage in the last couple of years, but yeah, I, I, I definitely like, you know, you get into comedy and I, that, there was a big transition where, and I, t- I talked about this, I'm sure I've talked about it on this podcast. Um, a million times, but this idea of validation versus connection. And when you first get into comedy, I think most people it's like, Hey, look, I'm funny. I'm funny. Aren't I funny? Look how funny I am. I'm telling jokes. You think they're funny. I'm alive because you think I'm funny. And there's a point where that, you know, you live or die by that. Sure. And when it becomes about the connection and ultimately I get more joy, like I've talked about seeing an audience responding to people in the lineup that I booked or a show that I produced. I will always want to perform, but I don't care about being famous at all. I, I want to um, just be able to create things that, that, that bring people together and, and create connective experiences for people. And in this day and age, I mean, even as we're both in a public format talking on a podcast, like you can still be a public figure. Sure. You can still find ways through, you know, we can upload a video of ourselves and make stuff, you know, with the drop of a hat. So it's like, you don't have to get on SNL for people to see you. You can feed that ego on any number of ways, anytime you want now. But you're famous in your own circle, if you think about it, because how many other people can open up their, their phone and have the numbers of X, Y, and Z comic that are big time names? I mean, if you needed someone to perform, uh, you know, at the improv or the lab or something like that, you could, you know, open your phone up and pull someone up. And I mean, you know, people that, you know, pretty, pretty famous people that the average person does not know or could not make a call to. So in your own circles, yeah, you, you may not be able to, you know, walk down Hollywood Boulevard or something like that. And people say, Hey, there's Jamie Flam, you know, but, but in your own world, you are a, a pretty big deal. And, and, oh, and but, but that's the case. I mean, if you looked at it on its surface, you, you really are. I mean, you know, you started this podcast as the gatekeeper, which I think has been phenomenal in how it's transformed because I think your original idea was, hey, I'm going to talk to other bookers of other comedy clubs and we're going to reminisce about the stories and some of the things that we've gotten into. And it's turned into, I'm going to now talk to comics or I'm going to talk to other people behind the scenes in different areas because we all make it together. You, you've got to You've got to be a team in order to put on a great show. And it's not just the bookers that are doing it, but the, the comedians have to do their jobs and, uh, you know, the, the set directors and, and, and things like that, that come in. And I can't remember his name for the life of me. And he just performed in Minneapolis, but just helped you 
that it helped you kind of decorate this place. Huh? Uh, yeah, Todd Glass. Yeah, oh, you saw him? Uh, no, I didn't. I, I I wanted to. I I'd seen that he was there too late to to get tickets, but he was was performing uh, at the Acme Comedy Club when he's out there. But it takes all those people to to bring it together. And again, in your world, people know who Jamie Flam is. I mean, again, it, it is. It's true. Uh, you know, I listen to to the Nerdist podcast. Chris Hardwick, pretty big name out there, and he's mentioned you before. Again, in your world, pretty big deal. And and I think that helps any of us to to know when we when we look back and quiet night in our own place. Say, I've got it pretty good because. Look at the extension of of what I am and and who I am, and you know, I, again, pretty big deal in your world. Oh, stop it! Gotcha. <laughs> I the the way this podcast is transformed, I think, to talk about that is it's it's about inspiring, and that's part of why I wanted you, of especially, like, you know, being an artist is the hardest thing in the world. Sure, and to make a career as an artist, and seeing and now you know being you know. 15 years into a career and, and you know, I, yeah, if you told me I was me booking a comedy club, the Hollywood improv, even seven or eight years ago, like laughed in your face. I just didn't see that. I would have been like, oh, I'm going to be on TV or, or producing a show or whatever it is. But wanting to expose, especially young artists or just anyone that's just struggling, like, what am I doing? Sure. Um, to remind people that of the hard work it takes to remind people that it's a struggle and a roller coaster ride. And you don't know where you're going to end up. And but that's part of the fun of it. You could be announcing for the Dodgers next year, Sean. Well, I know that won't happen because the job went to a 28-year-old who rightfully deserved it, uh, Joe Davis. 28 years old, if you think about that. Um, and, and again, that's why I say it's becoming a, a young person's game. Joe Davis, who's taking over, or I shouldn't say taking over, it's unfair to him, but who is who will be the voice of the Dodgers next year is 28 the guy that got the job with the LA Rams, and again, this is their first year, JB Long, is 33 years old. It is it is becoming the next generation that I think teams are wanting to find out who are these young guys that are up and coming in the minor league world. So before you get to that, you know, the major league world, I, in the last five years, uh, you know, this will go towards your podcast and, and the gatekeeper, I applied for two different broadcasting jobs. I think one was in 2011, the other was in 2012. And in both instances, they were double A teams. Again, double A, triple A, major leagues. Broadcasters don't have to necessarily take those steps, but it helps people out there that don't know. And I applied for a job down in Frisco, Texas, double A down there. I was one of the finalists. So it was me and like three, four other people. And they flew me down there and I interviewed. Okay. Now, you're going to get a lot of people that say, boy, I nailed the interview or I was up on stage and I, you know, I nailed that set or whatever. And it's always open interpretation, but I did my research. I knew everything about everybody in that front office so that if I was going to be interviewed by three or four different people, I could talk to them directly about what they've done in their careers. I had notes and, you know, I could just ask them questions. I was prepared. I knew everything about the team. I knew everything that I needed to know. The last question before I left was this. Now, I hadn't been offered the job. How much would you like to make? Okay. Now, I've, I've looked back on this a million times and said, maybe I should have answered it a number of different ways. But I gave a number and I said, here's what I'm making right now. You just need to match it. That's it. And, and that was all. Now, 
the person that they hired, so this was four or five, so I was 35, whatever it was. The person that they hired was 10 years younger than I was. I know 100% he got paid much less than what I asked for. Mm -hmm. But the, the other benefit that I had to them, the Frisco area is just out of Dallas, Fort Worth. So it's one of the top five or six largest media markets out there. Minneapolis, St. Paul is number 16, 17, 18, just depends. And they were looking for someone with big media experience like that. Well, there aren't many minor league baseball teams that are in major media markets, and I was one of them. And so if that was really a criteria, I should have been a slam dunk. But money plays a factor in the minor league baseball. You think you asked for too much? Oh, no doubt. No doubt. I, I think my response should have been, if you're offering me the job, we can talk about it or whatever it takes to get this job. Either one of those I think would have sufficed. But I, I was caught off guard because I didn't think I would be asked the money question. And in my mind, I thought, well, why should I take a pay cut? There's no way I should take a pay. You're, you're in a large media market, a larger one than I'm currently mm -hmm. at. I know how much your organization is worth because I've done my research. So I think what I'm asking for is pretty fair. And they hired a kid that was 24, 25. And again, should he have gotten it? Perhaps, I don't know. Um, and I'm not bitter. I'm not, no ill will. That's the way the, the, the job market works for anybody that's ever gone for a job. And I know they probably saved $10,000, $12,000, but that's the way the industry works and it becomes a younger person's game. And that's why I said earlier, once I get out, that's it. Nobody's going to look to hire a 40 something year old person that, you know, when they can hire to, you know, give it to a 25 year old. And that's, that's just the way it, it you think it's just economics because, um, I think it's both. So, I mean, 40 and maybe I'm just deluded and trying to convince <laughs> myself that I'm young, but, um, 40 is still so young. Yeah. I mean, the difference between 33 and 40, especially when you, you say it's the young person's game to come up, but so what is the gatekeeper to to be the next announcer for the New York Yankees or the LA Dodgers? Like how crazy is that jump? And what are the gatekeepers specifically that you need to get through for that? Yeah. So first of all, it's, and I'll try to relate it to, to your audience as, as best as I, I can. So it's probably the difference between being a headliner at, you know, just, just a smaller club. You know, I'll use, I'll use Acme in, in Minneapolis. I don't want to offend anyone here and I don't think I'm offending Acme itself. Um, but it's being a headliner, let's say there, where it's pretty good. Acme's well-known around. I heard it's one of the best clubs yeah, in the country. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then getting your own HBO special. Mm -hmm. Okay. Like making that jump. Okay. It, there, there's a lot of things that need to happen in between before you can get to there. And you've got to build your resume and you have to know the right people. I'll give you a perfect example. You and I have a very good friend. Okay. Uh, you know, Jen Rofe, I know she's married now, but I, whatever, I don't go with the, the married names. I know her as Jen Rofe, but Jen, her, her, her husband, um, I guess her brother-in-law worked for the LA Dodgers. Okay. And now he works for the Arizona Diamondbacks. The Diamondbacks had an opening this year for a broadcaster. Jen got me the in, just the in to send my stuff to so that it would be looked at. If I didn't have that in and I sent my resume and tape there, or my, my resume and demo, I shouldn't say tape anymore. It would have been just thrown aside. It would have been one of 150 people. But that in at least got it listened to. Now it went nowhere after that. But even with knowing someone, and that person wasn't the 
person to make the ultimate decision, mm -hmm. but it, it got me to the point of, all right, I'll make sure that the person who's in charge actually listens to it. And it got me nowhere. So I had a connection and it still got me nowhere. My resume is okay, but it's not major league worthy, you know, in terms of that. I could probably get a pre or post job right now, but to get flat play by play right now would be very, very difficult for me. And that's just reality. It's not because I'm not saying I'm not good enough, um, but there are other resumes out there and other connections out there that are so much stronger than mine. It's why I love doing the podcast that I do. And this is where I gush on you a little bit more. So, so the voice behind the voice again is my podcast. And Jamie comes to me probably two years ago now, give or take, and says, you know what? You should really start a podcast. <laughs> I know nothing about podcasts. I didn't. I, at that point, I didn't know. I didn't know you were, you were doing the long shot for so long at that point. I didn't know any of this stuff. And then a year later, you said you really should think about doing a podcast. And that's around the time like Serial had come, come out and I started listening to your podcast and I, I just got hooked. I got addicted to pod. Like, I listen to eight to 10 different podcasts now. Um, this being one of them, the, you know, the gatekeeper. And I started just taking mental notes. What makes a good one? What do I like? What don't I like? What have I phased out that I don't like anymore? And then it was just this past December. So whatever it is, 10 months ago. And you said to me again, you really should think about doing a podcast. And then you divulged to me this one, the gatekeeper. You said, look, I'm, I'm in the works of doing one. I'm, I'm getting it started. It's called the gatekeeper. It's me sitting down with other bookers. And I thought, that's fascinating. That's, that's a really interesting idea. And I thought to myself, how could I relate that to my business, to what I do? And it took me literally, Jamie, from the time that we were at the restaurant talking for me to get in my car to say, I have the idea. Like it just hit me like that. Like the light bulb just was extremely dim and then got lighter and lighter as I walked towards my car. And I thought to myself, here it is. And here's the name. Like, I didn't even, I didn't even scroll down 15, 20 different names. It was the voice behind the voice. I was like, I've got it. And what it allows me to do now is I reach out to media relations directors from these major league teams, NBA, NFL, NHL, NBA, NCAA, and try to set up these interviews. Usually they're always in person when they come to town or now me in California, if I can, you know, set something up while I'm here. And that's, that's my gatekeeper right there. I've got to get through the media relations guy to get to the play-by-play -play broadcaster. And I'd probably tell you, I've got an 80% success rate. You know, some won't respond to you. Some will tell you, I've only had one actually tell me no. Um, and it was the media relations person, not the broadcaster. But now what I'm doing is developing these connections with these big time broadcasters that appreciate and respect what I do. And that I could probably go back to at any time and say, all right, I need some help. I want to get this job. Or can you listen to my demo and let me know what you think? And I've got that now in my back pocket. It is similar to what you have with all these comedians that you can turn to and say, Hey, can you do a set? Or can you do me a favor? You know, I'm throwing a big bash or, you know, I want to have a night of Jamie Flam fun and I need you there, whatever it is. And that's now what it's allowed me to do. If, and this is the honest truth. I would never have done a pot, never in a million years. If you hadn't come to me on a handful of occasions, and even still, if you hadn't said, I'm starting this because I was listening to long shot at that time. And I thought, and I even told you, you know, in December, I said, I love it. It's great. It's 
three, four people sitting around just buddies chatting. It's, it's not even comedy. It's just you're chatting and you're talking about different things. I said, phenomenal. And I still didn't have the idea because everyone does a podcast, everybody. So what makes yours unique? And when you told me about the gatekeeper, I said, that's it. And I thought to myself, I'm the only one in the world that has this idea. Now I've since found there are about three or four of these, but a couple have now followed what I've done because mine has caught on a little bit. Again, it's not, we're not talking, you know, big time numbers or anything, but it's caught on the local ESPN affiliate in the twin cities heard about it. They put it on, on their website. Um, cause they have a bunch of podcasts and then, uh, podcast one, which is a national podcast platform, put it on theirs because there's a connection there. And so it's just more avenues for people to be able to listen to the podcast. And I'm having so much fun with it. It's, it's so interesting to find people's stories. That's what I love about this is finding people's stories, doing the research, knowing about people, and then digging deeper into those stories because we all have stories and I think it's entertaining. And that's what podcasts allow you to do. It's a long form story. Your, your, I mean, your your job is to speak on a microphone. You've always been so eloquent, and and we're just gushing on each other. And and your hair, the way it just quaffed, and this, the way it's the so one good thing I've got going for me is my hair. After that, that's it. That's it's probably why I'm not married. They get to the top, and then they start oh, going down, and that's it. <laughs> but podcasting always seemed, and that's why I was always pushing. I was like Sean. I think you have a unique world that you're in. Find something, and you will have success because it, it just allows you to talk more and you're so good at getting people stories. Even in high school, everyone went to Sean Aronson with their problems. It's true. If you had a girl problem, it was always a girl problem. <laughs> I think. Uh, but everyone went to Sean for advice and Sean, I was just telling, I mean, it's a funny aside, but we would go to your house because that was the place where we could drink yep. <laughs> alcohol, um, smoke pot, probably. Um, Gambled. My, and, and I mean, gamble. Yeah. <laughs> Literally. It was the house of debauchery is what it was. And, 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 and my mom doesn't care anymore. I think the statute of limitation has gone, come and gone, but she, she allowed all this. And, and a lot of it had to do, and this is the, I don't know if we've ever talked about this or if I ever talked about this with, with any of you guys, my parents had, had separated and my mom felt like the best way for me to kind of heal and do that was open up the house but I also think it was a, a positive for my mom as well, that I think that helped her as well, just to have people around. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think anyone envisioned it turning into what it did. I mean, it started off with what, seven of us, maybe eight of us, whatever it was, just a small group of people, as you said, Seinfeld, friends, and that was Thursday night. And then it went Thursday, Friday night. And then it turned into an all weekend thing. And it was just people rotating in and out because word got out at high school there's this house where all this stuff's going on, you know, and I think the graduation party had to be, I don't know, a couple hundred deep for the graduation party. I mean, there was a lot of people. Oh, there and even it. after that, like we, um, in college, we would come back yep. and have parties. Yeah. But yeah, that was, that was so much fun. But then Sean was the most, you never drank a drop. Nope. Still you have were, not. you never drank, you've never had a drink. No. You've never had a drink. Have not. You still have not had one drink. Have not. I've, cl- I've kissed plenty of girls that have been drunk. And so maybe that's the closest thing, but, uh, but no, still if not, no, if someone can bring me the Stanley cup, I would drink out of the Stanley cup. I always said, if the Kings won the cup, I would drink out of the cup. Well, they've won two. I've never been around anyone that, uh, that had the cup at the time, but if someone brings me the Stanley <laughs> cup. I will drink out of the cup right now. I mean, that's it. So if anyone can make that happen, please do so. Yeah, it's, but no, just haven't done it. I think now it's, it's taken on more of a life of its own type of thing. 
you know, where I just, I haven't, but a lot of people, people come up to you and say, wow, I'm, I'm pretty impressed. I'm not sure it's something you need to be impressed about. And you know, it's, well, I think it, most of the, the world is addicted to it in some way yeah. or another. Yeah. And there's no, and look, I, I'll date girls that'll be like, well, you know, I like I don't care. It doesn't, I've probably spent more time at bars than, than anyone that has drank because I become the, you know, proverbial designated driver and, and I have no problem with it. it. You get out, you have fun, you get to watch stupid people and how they, you know, how they act. And it, it, I don't have a problem with it. It's not, I have no good reason on why I don't do it. I just, I just haven't. And I, again, at this point, I think it's just taken on a life of its own where I just, I haven't done it. I don't know the right moment when it will happen, but I'll save it for something. You know, maybe someone's dumb enough to marry me. Maybe it'll happen then. I don't know. I did. Now I shouldn't say I, cause I always clarify, you know, for your bar mitzvah, you've got to drink the Manischewitz part of the sermon, which is awful. It, that stuff is junk. I actually but, had some Manischewitz on Monday. Did you? For Russia. For, for Russia. Yep. And so I, yeah, it's, it, that stuff was horrible. That's the only thing I've ever, I've ever had. I don't think you need to have that uh, asterisk. <laughs> you've never had a drink. No, I have not. So, but you've never, and you've never done any drugs nope, or nothing. And that I had no desire to do. Like I, I've never, I've never thought, Oh, I wonder what that's the drinking side I have. But so how, how do you keep your focus and how do you keep energy? Cause you, you always have yeah. energy. Like I know you, you work out yep. and like, what, what are, what are your other. <sighs> there isn't anything I need to have four or five things going on at once. I can't, I can't just have one thing. I, I get bored. I get bored so easily. And so that's why for my high is the baseball season. I am, I am running on fumes by halfway through the year. And this is no joke. And this is not to make anyone feel bad for me. My days during the season, there's 110 days in our league from opening day till the end of the season. If you don't make the playoffs, 110 days of those, you play 100 games of the 10 off days. You're probably traveling five or six of them of the three or four other days. I might get two or three days away from the office, but and you can attest to this because I've heard on your, your podcast, I think on, on the long shot, the emails don't stop. And I'm not someone that can just have them sitting there. Like I have to respond. I'm on vacation right now and I'm, st- I'm not a lot of emails, but I'm getting emails and I can't let them sit because two weeks, you know, a week from now, I don't want to go back to, you know, 30 or 40 emails, whatever it may be, you know, 30 or 40. Well, it's the off season, different right. story. So during the baseball season, wait, I mean, we're talking hundreds during the course of a day. Mm-hmm. Um, but that just bothers me. So I have to respond. I just, I'm that person that, that has to do it. So, but it's, it's 15 hour days. It's 9 a.m. until 10, 11 o'clock at night. And then you get up and you do it the next day. I work out Monday through Friday, get up at, you know, 6.30 in the morning, go to the gym. That's my time. Okay. That's, that's my me time and that's it. And then the season is what it is. We don't travel via chartered jet or anything like that. It's, it's mostly by bus, chartered bus, but still, you know, you're traveling by bus and it wears on you. I mean, you know how it is. You're, you're exhausted and you, you start to get short tempered and all these people that you work with, and it's the same here, you know, at the, at the improv, all these people that you work with, all your best friends, all of a sudden become your worst nightmares and you start snipping each other because you've, you've worked so much and you're, you, you, you don't have the focus anymore and you, you're not going on a lot of sleep. And so the smallest things you start to snip at people. Well, that's how it is in, in our world too. It's the side that people don't ever see. Um, but that's why I got in this business was for the baseball season. My favorite time, and I'm curious yours, but my favorite part of my job is the second I put the headset on and the first pitch is delivered. No one can bother you. 
No one can say anything to you. They can't tell you what to say. They can't tell you what to do. That's your show. That's it. And no emails, no phone calls, no nothing. It's you and the baseball game. And they're paying you to watch a baseball game and to broadcast a baseball game. And that's my favorite time during the season. All the other minutiae I could get rid of. So for you, and again, I've heard you. I know it's a lot of work. Is there a moment within your job, because we all have things that we do to try and get away, but within your job where you say to yourself, this is why I got into this business. Hmm. Certainly I talked about, you know, when, when there's nothing like the palpable energy of a, a room that's packed where comics are killing and everyone's on the same page and connecting. And, you know, when there's luminaries and Louis CK or Sarah Silverman or something walks in the room, like there, there's, you know, that excitement. But for me in the last year or two, I've, I've recognized, well, two things. One, the family. Like this has been my home sure. for six years. Um, and Rita and, you know, all of our staff and so many of our comedians, like this is my like family. Like I live three blocks away. You know, I walk over here, you know, in off hours when I'm not even working. Like I can walk here and, and instantly have a family of people. So like the family aspect, you know, it's not ever what you think about when you're getting into your career in comedy or broadcasting or anything in this world. But I couldn't ask for a better family. So that's like, I'm like, I pinched myself sure. and like, and, and talk about stories. Like this place should be a reality show. Like it, it's so <laughs> many stories, everyone coming in and out with, with their crazy stories. It, it's insane. But then inspiration. I mean, I, 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 I thematically I've fi figured out that that's what I want to do with my life is to inspire others. And, you know, and, and in turn, there's a selfish aspect of that too, where, it helps inspire myself. But when I get to sit with artists and comedians or writers, whoever it is sitting and talking is when I get energized. Sure. You know, in the last few years, people have like, they hit me up to, for, for walks. I take walks around this neighborhood and just to talk about life and stuff like that. And, and just like trying to inspire people to be their best as an artist. But I've, that's what drives me. And I'm, I don't feel complete. Like I, sometimes I'm, I'm worn out. Like I just go into my sure. apartment and, you know, I'll sit in there for, for a day. Um, but, and you know, and then can get in my head and just like, just be like, what am I doing with my life? What the fuck is this? But as soon as I, I sit in front of another human being or human beings and just start talking, I get the energy back again. So I don't, I forgot what the question no, was. No, that's perfect. No, that's great. Uh, what I want to know, cause you, you just brought this up. Are you more excited about a young comic that you see develop or booking a big name act here which one gets your juices flowing more i would say the young act at this point i mean there's it's always thrilling when a huge luminary walks in and does something big and you know is that what they're called in the industry by the way luminaries or is that your word I don't, uh, it's my word. No, that's a great word. I just didn't know if like they wanted to be referred to as luminaries. I don't know if I, <laughs> they would refer to themselves as that, but, um, you know, uh, the people that just, you know, transcend <laughs> yeah. like fame and talent levels. Um, but I mean, in the last two weeks, I mean, someone that and there's, I wish there were more, but there, there's a handful of people that I, I've given stage time to. And now that it's been enough years, there's, there's people coming to me like, you know, you always have given me spots and tried to work me in. 
But Melissa Villasenor just got hired for SNL, and she's one of the most talented people I've ever met. And, you know, she's someone that I've given a lot of love to with stage time. She started doing her own solo show in the lab, you know, just a month ago or two months ago. And so to see her get sure. the call up to be a cast member on SNL, like that's phenomenal. And like th- there's a certain joy to that, that, you know, you can't take any credit for that. The only credit is her hard work and, you know, pure talent. But knowing that, that you at least gave them a place to, to develop their talents is, you know, that's very rewarding. And, and, what you're like, you're like a scout in the sports world. You know, there are scouts that go all over the country to find talent and either they get drafted out of college or, you know, you make trades for, you know, different players. But that's kind of what you you are. You you have to notice someone's talent in order to bring them back up onto a stage. Because if someone doesn't have the talent, they're not going to sell tickets and you're not going to want to have them back. Or you go to an open mic night or you have open mic nights here and you see someone with talent, you're going to try to you know, book them here because eventually they're going to wind up selling tickets. I mean, that's what makes the the world go round. but you have to have a good eye for this sort of things. What, is there something that you look for? I'm sure, I know you've talked about it and I know you probably get this question and it's, it's very broad because there's not one thing, but you know, is there something that, Hey, I'm looking, if you've got stage presence or this is the toughest thing to do, or, or, you know what, have five good minutes or, or whatever. I mean, is there something you tell young comics these days? Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, it's gotten to the point and I don't know if it's being jaded or just burnt out or, but you know, you watch hundreds and probably thousands of hours of stand-up and comedy over the years. And you know, it's, I can just look at someone and just um, sniff authenticity and that, I mean, cause there's so many funny people and it's not taking their talent and you, you can see other few years away from, but when I laugh, <laughs> if I laugh out loud, I'm like, there's something there, but at this point more than ever, it's, it's, you know, having a unique voice because there's so many people sure. talking about the same thing. And, and it does not to say that a lot of these people aren't funny and are going to have great careers, but I really want someone that's saying something interesting that has a unique take and a unique voice. And it's working hard to, it's so cliche, but they're truly themselves on stage and in up, especially like you can tell when people are doing rehearsed bits. And I mean, everyone has their sure. jokes is that's where they're going. And, and, and I tell people, you want to have a tight vibe where you're doing your jokes, but human, when you see the humanity in people, that's when they shine. True. It's, there was a guy that went up and he's an up and comer and sells a long way to go, but he came and did one of our developmental shows and his jokes were funny, but he mispronounced, I forgot a word or he said something wrong. And the 30 seconds of him, like, you know, addressing that he fucked up this word and just was, he was truly himself in those moments and and ended up being the set of the night. And I talked to him after, I was like, it was so funny that it was like, do you have that rehearsed in your back pocket? So when you fuck something up, it's like, no, I was just fucking flustered. I was like, that's when you're the funniest. Yeah. The best comedians in history are like, it's like the ones that are truly angry and they're fucking railing on stage and, and ranting and raving. And it's when the humanity of it. It's that's pretty good. I want to know the the first big time act that you you booked that you were that you said I cannot believe that I was able to get that person. Hmm. I mean, early on, um, even at the West Side, I remember you know booking Maria Bamford for the first mm-hmm. time, and her you know texting me because she she was like, "I'm in this alley. I don't know where I am." and 
and and just even like the, there was a groundswell like in because you know the West Side was especially in those days it was a very ragtag it was a bunch of like we're improvisers and it's like a mix of people that are trying to be actors and just like you know moms that like just are house moms that are just trying to take an improv class but like this ragtag group is like Maria Bamford's coming she's coming all the way from Silver Lake and um, so that was exciting and you know some of those people early on um, the improv of course you know like it's the improv yeah and. Of course, you know, I have to be proactive sure. and there's certainly people and, um, you know, for me, I, I booked Eugene Merman, who's, um, one of my favorite comics, but booking him for just to, for, for off night, just because I was like, went after him. That was exciting for me. Any relation to Ethel Merman? Uh, I don't think so. Okay. But, um, they have the same last name. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, uh, so many things just fall in your lap here. Like I, it's like, not like I'm just hitting up Louis C.K. and saying, hey, come on down. You know, it's his big time sure. Hollywood agent yeah. or New York agent hitting me up saying, Louis wants to come. What do you got? Or Aziz or, although, you know, there's been like, you know, hitting up Aziz Ansari and, uh, um, you know, Nick Kroll and Sarah Silverman, you know, built a relationship where like, you know, I'm like, hey, I got this really cool show. There's going to be a band. Come on down. So th there's a few of those big ones. Um, but it, it, I, I recognize so much of it's because it's the improv and I've developed relationships over the years, but the improv will always be the improv and they'll never have trouble getting some big names down. Any guests that you want you have not been able to get yet? That's a good question. Uh, I mean, Jerry Seinfeld did come one night. Um, it's pretty good. I wasn't here that night many years ago. Um, oh, there's too many, Sean. I don't know. Wait, but speaking of big people. Yeah. Your team mm -hmm. is owned by Bill Murray. Yeah, he's he's one of uh, three primary owners. Uh, so the Bill Murray, um, you know, it's it's funny. I've he's I've worked at, like I said for the team for ten years. He's probably come out six of those ten years. My first interaction with with Bill, and um, I call him Bill on this podcast, but I don't know him that well. Like I couldn't pick up the phone and call Bill Murray right now. Uh, but everything you hear about Bill Murray is true. Like there's a you know, the 800 number, all that sort of stuff. Now we have a way to directly get in touch with him, uh, you know, when we want to invite him out to a game, but it's not like we invite him out to 30 games a year or anything like that. But my first interaction with him was 2008 and team I work for still, still the same team, the St. Paul Saints were hosting the all-star game. And so Bill came out and it's the only time I've ever had him in the broadcast booth. And I thought, wow, Bill Murray's pretty big deal, but you know, whatever he's my owner, you know, I'm not going to gush or do anything, but still a big deal. So he comes into the broadcast booth, puts the headset on. All right. It's my, it's my moment. This is my time. And so I say to myself, all right, I'm just going to ask a good leading question to Bill Murray. Just, just get it started. Let's get us off on the right foot. Let everybody know a little bit of background. So I looked at Bill and I said, so how did you get started with the St. Paul Saints? Bill looks at me and he says, well, you've clearly done your homework. And that's how my interview with Bill Murray started, like just crucified me. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my God. And like, we joke about that to this day, not Bill and I, but like a bunch of people, the, the <laughs> production crew that still does our, our, our TV production and all that. But and now it, 
after that, everything was fine. I don't remember what happened after that. I have it on DVD. I could go back and watch it anytime. But like, I thought to myself, man, I can't believe, but I, it, one of two things happened. Either like he was being totally serious or he was being Bill Murray. Bill Murray is not, he's not stand up comedy funny. That's not him. That's not who he is. He's just, he's very off the cuff and just very animated and just things that he does. And so I was thinking to myself, is he, is he crucifying me or is he trying to be, you know, like sarcastically funny right now? And it didn't phase me too much. We went into whatever afterwards and you know, that was it. The second time, my second true interaction, I've, I've interacted with him many times. He'll come out to the game. He'll take batting practice on the field before, before games. He'll uh, be in the dugout with the team. Um, all these things happen. Super nice guy. But my second like real interaction the ownership group owns about three or four different teams and and Bill lives in Charleston South Carolina which is where we own one of our teams and the ownership meetings or the group meetings were there two or three years ago and the second day of the meetings their two day meetings we're all sitting around you know 50 of us around uh, you know a bunch of tables and you know Bill shows up the second day and mind you, he goes to a number of Charleston games um they're the single A affiliate of what are they, the Tampa Bay Rays I think down there anyways and um, he he has some input, okay? Because he he sits there as a fan and has some input and whatever. I, for the most part, run the Twitter account of the St. Paul Saints, okay? And I turned to the guy sitting next to me who works for us, and and I said, hey, do you think it'd be okay if I just took a picture and put it on Twitter and made some sort of comment? He was like, yeah, go for it. So I took a picture, and I'm thinking to myself, you know what? I don't want to do that without, you know... So there's a break in the action and I, you know, break in the, the meetings and I go up to him and, Hey, you know, Bill, hope all is well, you know? And he said, I know verbatim, you're the ass that just took my picture. And I thought to myself, I'm two for two right now with, with Bill Murray. And I said, Bill, I promise you, I said, you can check my phone. I deleted the photo cause I didn't think it was right. I, I, you know, I was going to post it on, on, you know, Twitter or whatever, but I just didn't think it was right. Um, and he, he looks at me and just sort of stares. He's like, I believe you. And then we got into a discussion about social media, just sort of talking about it. You know, he had his, he had his input and I, I, you know, gave him mine. And we just, we had a normal conversation at that point. But I thought, man, here is this guy that anyone ha- and everybody's got their Bill Murray story and, you know, him going up to people and whispering in their ear, or just showing up randomly. And I've been basically crucified by this guy twice. And again, it's no reflection to him. I was in the wrong the second time. hundred percent. I was in the wrong. I, I should never have done it. <laughs> I, I was, trust me. Look, it, again, that's my owner. It's not Bill Murray. That's, that's the owner of, of the ball club. And so you, it's like any owner. Okay. You can't treat that any differently. Um, you know, the first time again, it's up for, you know, uh, debate on, on how he went about it. But I was like, man, I, I can't catch a break at all. I'm that guy. I am that guy who, you know, just wrong place, wrong, wrong time does the stupid thing that normally is a very intelligent guy and just like does the dumb things. And it's not because I'm starstruck. I, you know, I've met a lot of famous people. He's another level though. Yeah, it's true. But, but again, I, I've been around him enough, you know, where, and later on that night we were all hanging out at, uh, at a house that, that our other owners had rented, just kind of a, you know, bonding experience for, for all the teams uh, across that they own. And, you know, he was there and we chatted for, for a little bit very briefly and, you know, he didn't bring it up. It wasn't like he harbored anything. If I ran into him on the street, he could not, he wouldn't know my name nor, nor should he, but he might recognize me or, you know, say, Hey, you know, when he comes to the ballpark at, you know, in St. Paul, he'll, he'll say hi, I'll shake my hand. He'll, he'll do all that. He knows I work for the team, but those are my two encounters with Bill Murray. I, well, I would say 
first interaction, it was a little bit of uh, messing with you. Sure. But I think he was trying to be funny. I mean, and that could very well be. I, I, I have no doubt. And, and he, he, he was very funny after that and other things that he was doing. Uh, we have this thing, seventh inning stretch. We throw peanuts out the window. You know, you sing the seventh inning stretch and take me out to the ball game and we throw peanuts out the window. Well, he was throwing peanuts out of the window and then anything that wasn't nailed down, he started throwing out the window. Like I was afraid he was going to pick up my computer and throw it out the window. Cause again, he's just, he's placating the fans. He's trying to be humorous and funny. And he's, I mean, just anything you get his hands on, he was throwing out the window. Um, and it was good. And there was this woman the back of the stands. The woman out. No, there's this woman in the back of the stands and you could reach up in, in that ballpark. We've since moved to another one and you could reach up to the window. Well, she reaches up to try and grab Bill and he takes my, my duct tape and duct tapes are to the wall, which was hilarious. And we got it on television and what have you. But again, that's, that's who he is. So, but I, I don't disagree with you on the first sort of encounter. But I want to, uh, don't crucify me, but how did Bill Murray get involved with the, the St. Paul? Yeah. And, and nor should you be crucified. He, so he had a connection with one of our other owners. Um, there, there's a connection there. And, and so that's, they originally started by buying a team in Miami um, and then have, they purchased some other teams. Or just like for, for uh, I think it's just something, he's a big baseball fan. He's a big Chicago Cubs fan. Anyone that knows, you know, Bill Murray, they know he's a big Cubs fan. And I think he just likes baseball and it's just something that, you know, he can be a part of and, um, you know, attach his name to and, uh, you know, like I said, he lives in Charleston uh, and probably goes to a dozen Charleston River Dogs games uh, a year. He he enjoys being out at the ballpark. You know, every once in a while he'll bring his sons out, and um, his sons are older now, and you know, just a chance to 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 bond. I think that's what it is. That's what baseball is for people. It's you know, it's it's your childhood. It's childhood memories, and and that's what it is. And I think that's kind of what it is for him as well. What is it for you? <laughs> baseball I, I it is that i mean you know i i remarked on this in a, a preview of um of of my podcast and i said you know vin scully when he retired and you know the, the weekend the last weekend at dodger stadium and then he was in san francisco and i literally cried i cried and i'm not an emotional guy i don't get emotional i don't cry about real life stuff um but i i i i got choked up yeah and i think it was because it does. It reminds you of a simpler time. Being out at the ballpark reminds you of what it's like to be. There are no cares in the world. You're out at a ballpark. You know, for some, it's father and son bonding or just family bonding or whatever is reminds you of a little league or whatever it reminds you of. It reminds you of those simpler times. And, and I realize how lucky I am every time I go to the ballpark during the baseball season, I put a headset on. So I'm sure you get this all the time. People say, I could do what you're doing everyone thinks they can because they think it's that easy. You know, I know baseball, but it's not that easy. I know what's funny. No, but you don't, you don't know the little ins and outs. And so when you put a headset on and you're watching a game and you're just describing it, you're telling stories to me that there's nothing better than that. There really isn't. That's great. And so what, what's next? How, how do we get you into <laughs> this fucking fucking 28 year old schmuck yeah right um Let's get him out of here yeah. no it, look and again it, joe will eventually be a, a guest on on my podcast i've reached out to him he's been super nice um he doesn't live in la quite yet but but he'll be moving to la but uh he, he's been great and a couple of times i've reached out to him we'll we'll eventually uh, i'll get him on my podcast but look i i just i keep plugging away there, there's such a small percentage, as is there in the comedy world, of people that actually make it, the big time. That's not so you can't have a career doing, you know, 
the Acme Comedy Clubs or, you know, any of the, the comedy venues here in, in Los Angeles. You don't have to have an HBO special to, to have made it. Mm-hmm. There's such a small percentage of people that do that. So I keep plugging away. At some point, I'll either say, this is what I want to continue doing, or I, I want to go try something else. And I think we all have that in the back of our mind. We, you and I are creative in what we do, and we don't want to be limited in our creativity. This medium, the podcast medium, allows you to be creative in a lot of different ways. Writing allows you to be creative. Getting up on stage and performing a variety show allows you to be creative. You don't want someone tempering that creativity. I mean, is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Well, I think this is a perfect point to um, wrap this up. We could, I could talk to you for hours. This, uh, seriously, this has been great. And you know, I joke on my podcast that I'm too much. I'm too much of a Q and A guy. Like I haven't learned the art of conversation. Not even in real life, I haven't learned the art of conversation, but, but it's, it's nice to sit across from someone that I've known for, you know, 20 plus years to chat and to really be excited for what you've done in your career, to know that you've helped me in terms of getting the podcast off the ground and really inspiring me to do that, which I know is a big thing for you. I cannot thank, and this is as genuine as it comes. I cannot thank you enough for what you've meant to, to me, just not as a, you know, in terms of the podcast, but as a friend, uh, through, through all these years, really, I cannot thank you enough. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. And you've been an inspiration likewise for me and and all our friends and hopefully to all the listeners that, you know, it making $9,000 in Allentown (laughs) to, you know, still living in Minnesota for 10 years, announcing a thousand games and, knowing and i know in my heart that you will land with a a major league team and that will happen and you just got to keep keep plugging away and what an interesting different world but how similar they are Uh, i agree and uh i know you've got uh are you going to get out on what you normally get out on do you have it with you before you do that so 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 the voice behind the voice yeah so oh i I guess plug i never plug i'm not that guy uh yeah so the voice behind the voice you can find it itunes or you know anywhere where you get your podcast uh at the voice BTV. So I would say boy, Tommy Victor at the voice BTV on, on Twitter, Facebook, same thing, facebook.com backslash the voice BTV. Uh, and, and that's how you can, you, you can find it. Um, really, I, I, I enjoy doing what I do. If, if you're a sports fan, uh, if you're not a sports fan, if you just like learning about people and their stories and how they got to the upper echelons of where they've gotten to, uh, that's, that's a great place to go. So now it's your turn. You gotta, you gotta, yeah. well, you gotta pitch yours first because you know, my listeners. All right. Are so, um, gatekeeper podcast yep. at gatekeeper pod on Twitter and, you know, at Jamie flam for all my other stuff and jamieflam.com. And as I always say, work on your craft endlessly. And this goes just as much for broadcasters as it does for comedians or anyone else. Work on your craft endlessly, be a professional be undeniable, and be Be cool cool as as fuck fuck always. always. For more episodes of Gatekeeper, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts.